Good, so we're good to go. Uh, Walter, thanks very much for jumping on. I know we've gone back and forth a little bit trying to sort out a time, both very, very busy schedules at the moment. Um, how are things your end? Are you all safe and well and busy? Um, yeah, all is well on my end. Uh, yeah, like like uh, you mentioned, we, we, it's been a couple of times to narrow down a, a time slot. It's been quite busy, at least here uh, in the academy. Uh, we're full in swing. We have a couple of league matches uh, with the older boys. Uh, so with that, I mean, being said, you know, midweek, uh, midday, I'm sorry, midweek matches to like weekend matches. So it's been super chaotic, but I mean, it's I, I'm enjoying it. So I'm blessed to to be working in such a good setting and just, you know, be, being able to coach like where, whereas a year ago, you know, that wasn't really the case because of uh, COVID-19 kind of took a hit on a lot of our jobs. So I'm, I'm very fortunate and blessed to, to be able to be doing this, but all is well in here in Philadelphia. Perfect. So obviously I've, I've looked a little bit in terms of your background and stuff and it's very extensive and I'm sure we'll get into some of those experiences later on. But for people that maybe don't know you or don't know your background, you just want to talk through, I guess, some of the highlight roles you may have had and then where you are at the moment and what that looks like. Yeah, so um, I guess... Um a broad overview of, of myself and we can dive into it is I am a performance coach, uh, strength coach. Uh, you know, at 20 over the years, I've kind of like told myself, what am I? Am I a performance coach, strength coach? I know it's all kind of the same, but at the end of the day, I, I'm someone who's just fascinated, fascinated in, uh, in, you know, human anatomy, human physiology and human performance, but also someone who likes to educate, teach and coach. So, I guess the short term, I, I'm a performance coach. Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. I'm new to here to, to the East Coast uh, in the States. So Philadelphia just took a job here with the Philadelphia Union and their academy. Uh, so originally, again, originally from Los Angeles, California, I, I did my, my undergraduate studies at Cal State Northridge, got my bachelor's in kinesiology at yeah at Northridge. And then you know a couple of internships from here and there, starting off from Exos all the way to working at the United States Olympic Training Center for Team USA, and then to baseball in another country, like a little bit all over the place. Got my master's from A.T. Still University in, in kinesiology with a dual emphasis in orthopedic rehab and sports conditioning. Uh, I have my certification, uh, CSCS from the NSCA, um, uh, USAW, sir. I'm, I'm a big Olympic weightlifting uh, fan and person, so I have that certification. I do that a little bit on my own, my own leisure, doing a couple Olympic lifts. Um, I'm very fascinated about that sport, but at the end of the day, uh, football, soccer has always been my go-to sport, and I'm just happy to work in this setting. Perfect. So obviously you alluded to there kind of working in the academy at, at Philadelphia Union stuff. So what does that look like? Um, I guess, age-wise, and what do you cover, um, I guess, from a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Yeah, so it's quite actually fascinating here because um, I actually, my, my previous job before the union, I actually was the academy performance coach with the LA Galaxy back out in Los Angeles, um, but very different setting in terms of here. Um, uh, I have quite a bit of a, um, more responsibilities, but all greater responsibilities. I, I want to say it's all new and a good learning experience because with the academy set, set up here, it's very, I want to say very special because we're fully integrated with, you know, with the school set up right here, the charter school that the boys go to 
and, you know, the football setting, um, you know, developing, you know, the next gener next generation of, of uh, first team players for the first team or an MLS. So for the most part, you know, I'm in charge of the U-17s, the oldest boys in the academy. And I do work with all the other age groups, which is like the 15s, 14s, 13s. Uh, all the way down to the 12s. But in terms of like my major team, it is the U17s where I handle like the, the data analytics side from, you know, the sports science side, uh, just a little bit more geared towards them. But again, that's not just always my responsibility. We have a nice uh, little setup for the Union Academy. It's called uh, school training. Uh, essentially think of it as uh, it's physical, physical education, PE. So uh, Monday through Friday, you know, the boys uh, from 9.30 a.m. to 10.30, they're, you know, we're doing long-term athletic development skill sets, um, introducing, you know, multi-sports, uh, co cooperative games, uh, essentially PE, but also some days, you know, integrating with um, the football side. So I'm, I'm a part of that, you know, one day out of the week, uh, we have something called Mind Gym, which is very interesting where we develop more on the the sports psychology of, um, of sports. So where we have like mental skill sets, uh, exercises for the boys, how to cope with stress. So I'm, I'm a part of that where, you know, where I, where I assist with, you know, we have someone come in who's kind of like a sports psychologist and uh, yeah, assist with that. But then again, you know, as the, as the, you know, evening comes on, our, our younger boys come out, you know, our 14s, 13s and 12 essentially come in, you know, do, um, an activation for them. Also individual like physical development work where, with our top prospects in the weight room. So it's a little bit all over the place. Um, that's I'm, I'm a very busy person, but you know, I'm enjoying every single minute of it because I, I found my calling and that's working in, in long-term athletic development. Perfect. So there's loads of really good stuff that I want to dig yeah. into there. Um, so I guess the first thing, just to provide a bit of context for everyone. So you mentioned there kind of Philadelphia being a little bit unique in, in its setup, having a school and stuff. So it sounds like it's the under 12s up from, from what you said there. Yeah. Um, so can you just talk through kind of what, what the academy actually looks like in terms of having that link to the school and when the lads generically might train or what that looks like and why yeah. it is so unique yeah so um i guess a good example would be let's go with our our under 15s because i know our um or even our older boys the under 17s but uh what a typical day-to-day -day would look like i'll shoot it up with with a monday because that's usually our busiest day so it's it's our re-entry day um coming you know from the weekend we play a game on a saturday so what um what a Monday would look like. We come in with, uh, we, I, we meet with the staff every morning before training. So that can be between the hours of 6.30 to 7 in the morning. We kind of go over the plan of the day, uh, what we're going to do, um, speak with the sport coaches um, and just to kind of go over what we're going to do in the weight room because that's the first thing we do when the boys come in is they they do their strength and conditioning, the, the, the physical development before training. It's usually 30 minutes. Um, Right now, we are currently in block two, which is more of our introduction of our power lifts or our speed lifts, which we have like trap bar cleans. Uh, it's just that part of the season. So we do a 30-minute lift with the boys, which also essentially is their activation or their, their warm-up to training. Uh, so that's usually between 8.15 to 8.45, and then the boys are out on the pitch 
we do um, the field session, give or take, we were usually finished like around 10 o'clock, but usually within that time, uh, within the hours of nine and 10, school training starts for our 15s, 14s, and 13s. While we do um, more of other physical development um, during that time, and usually give or take around 10.30 to 11, the boys now go to school. So we are, they're literally, the, the facility is probably 500 feet down the block or it's the same like uh, vicinity. And then just the boys go to school, um, they get their studies done and give or take probably around two to three o'clock-ish, uh, the boys would come back on the pitch. They do IDP, individual development work, um, you know, with, with their coach uh, and usually give or take about that, you know, the 17s are done for the day. At this hour, they, they, you know, they go home, they rest up, prep for the next day. But our 15s, 14s, uh, 13s, their, their evening session starts because they don't train in the morning. Um, that usually is between three to um, six o'clock. You know, they, again, they come in, weight room, 30 minutes, and then they go out into the field. Uh, we pull apart some kids who are our top prospects and we just do individual work for the physical development, whereas like teaching them biomechanics of how to run better, um, just individual prep work. But that is essentially a 12 hour day. So Monday is quite, quite busy. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting the fact that obviously you can manage that schooling within that so I guess my next question is recruitment of players. Do you stay locally to Philadelphia or are you able to recruit externally and then kind of board those players as well? And do they yeah. go home or do they go have a boarding house? How does that look? Yeah, there, there, there is a boarding house. I believe there are, there is two um, where the boys stay. So, cause we do uh, not only just recruit locally, we do nationwide uh, searches. So we look for the best of the best and um, it's uh, without being biased, it's arguable that this academy, this club is has, is easily top three of um, in the nation for, um, for within the academy uh, youth development. So we're pumping out talents and I believe we're the one club with the most minutes uh, within the first team that, you know, from the academy, these boys um, getting promoted, I believe, I, I believe we saw a chart the other day. Yeah. So the union is doing right by, you know, promoting great homegrown talent. Um, but yeah, there is a two boarding houses that the boys stay. So a lot of, yeah, they carpool from together. Um, but yeah, as well as, yeah, local. So it, it's quite of a, it's a nice experience. And then in terms of uh, the academy identity, I know we hear about it a lot in the UK in terms of philosophy or style of play or the, the West Ham way, Southampton way, Tottenham way, etc. Do you guys have a set philosophy in which you, your teams try to play? And then off the back of that, is there physical characteristics you look for in players to feed into that? Uh, for, for, the, for the most part, yeah, it's uh, high pressure very uh, strong pressure, very strong in physical development. Because from when I first came in, um, it was uh, it was quite noted that you know at least with our with our under twenty threes because we do kind of have like quote unquote like an under twenty threes club, which is they're classified as the Union Two. Um, we have the average age is usually about seventeen, so it's quite young. And you know with that U twenty threes club um, playing in, which would now kind of 
debunked in a way. There's going to be a new reserve league that's going to come into play. They play against older older kids, you know, uh, you know, postgraduate uh, between 25 to even older. So there's this perceived notion that a lot of clubs don't like to play us because they're playing against 17 year olds. Well, that's 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 the whole point. So we're, we're a feeder. We're trying to breed talent. We have young kids. So with that case, we have to build robust players. We have to build players that can handle the pressure. So that's why we take physical development very serious. So the boys can withstand the demand of, uh, you know, the club's philosophy, philosophy, which is very high pressure. It's uh, attack. Um, it's very exciting football. So with that said, being said, so when we are in the weight room, we have to develop those characters. Even when it comes to recruitment wise, uh, we have a, a testing battery that like, can we find like a player that with raw potential and can we like mold that player from at least on our end that would complement you know the technical side so are there any particular tests or parameters you look for externally when either you're doing trials or you're looking at players potentially bring in etc is there any particular test you put them through to see if they're going to fit yeah. the physical characteristics and what are they yeah. Do. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, with these tests, uh, it's nothing too fancy. It's not very like. It's just plain and simple. We we do our power test, which you can classify that as a as a jumping test, a, uh, a counter movement jump with arms, uh, without arms, which like hands on the hip, a squat jump. We do a broad jump. Uh, we do a forty meter uh, dash with um which we do like a 10 gate like interval so we look at the their acceleration and then their top end speed when they hit the 40. we for a fitness test um we do a 30 15 but we don't put our trialists um on the fitness test and that was a talk with our with our um, scouting director because we don't want to give the perceived uh, notion with you know our trialists like hey look we're going to put you through a 30 15 test we're going to kill you like no so obviously you know, within that case, like we don't do it. If the if the kid does make it into the academy, we do give them the thirty fifteen test. But for the most part, we have GPS units like on, on a Wednesday when it's just our big open spaces day. We strap them onto a unit and see how much distance and what's their work rate cover. So that kind of quote unquote serves as their as their fitness test because they're usually on on trial for about a week for the prospects. Uh, we also do a push up test. Um, and we do uh, an MDSA test, which is called multi-directional speed and agility, which we do a compass test where the boys essentially, it's a change of direction. To, uh, so they go five meters forward, then cut out five meters to the right, back into the middle around the cone. So essentially hitting every single point for time. And then with those tests, we then get like the standard deviation and the mean and find where they are in the team average and then find uh, and rank them for their score of athleticism. And from then on, and it's just, we now report to the scouts, the our, our director of the academy, hey, this is where so-and-so ranks within, you know, the U14s, but also within his age group, because we also bio-band the boys. We take that into consideration where they are at um, in their um, adult stature and as they're growing. And does, would those testings go all the way through? So would they go from like your youngest players and all the way through um, to your yeah. under 23s? If yeah. You know. So, so essentially um, whenever we get, uh, we get a note like, oh, this is a top prospect. We put them through those battery of tests. Usually 
on a Tuesday and then follow up on a Wednesday. We split it within those two days, but we don't test out every, um, every prospect that comes in. Just if they were like the top 10 within the nation or the state, we give them those battery of tests just because it's just that it's also time and resources because it takes away from time from, for me when I would be with, with our, with our U 17s, because we usually test them early in the morning as when their bodies are just as fresh because it's, it doesn't do much for us if, you know, they, we test them in the afternoon when they potentially, because they also go into school training. They, they're a part of that. Um, so again, we're trying to keep them fresh. So early in the morning, usually 7.30, right, when we start testing them. Perfect. And then when you're, um, when you're looking at your season breakdown, something you mentioned earlier on was kind of being in, in your power phase, et cetera. What, how do you break down your season in terms of looking to achieve ac- uh, athletic development? And what are, yeah. what are those breakdowns? How long for, et cetera? Yeah, so th- this is actually, it's been quite interesting because because um, of COVID had kind of like shut us down nationwide. So I know in my previous club that I was at, it was um, a complete shutdown. Uh, California, at least the Los Angeles area, was one of the few cities in the nation that was, it was really tough to, to manage. You know, being outdoors, who can participate outside? So when when we were shut down as a club it was from like april and i recently just found out just from um, an old friend that they just dating it started up until this january whereas you know the philadelphia union they didn't they were uh, as i mean this side of the of the states was um a little bit more managed they started up in august so i mean they probably had a three month shutdown Versus some of the other states back in West Coast, it was almost a whole entire year, which was uh, insane. But I mean, coming in when I when I got hired, because I, I started in December, this past December, uh, met with my boss, uh, Joe Trocchio, and who is our head of Academy of Performance. We sat down and we just planned everything out um, with macro templates. Like we got the game schedule for spring and we're like, okay, this is, these are the certain games. This is what blocks we're going to hit. So we essentially planned ahead. Um, kind of plan took a guess because I know every spring or at least the end of the season, there's always a big tournament. We, we took a stab. I'm like, okay, this tournament may happen between the end of May, which is where we're supposed to peak and we're supposed to be at our top physical uh, performance, uh, which we guessed right. We are going to be playing a big tournament in um, the end of uh, May, which is uh, the MLS Academy Cup at um, Atlanta, Georgia. So, yeah, we uh, we did right. We guessed right. And, again, that just came from planning. And so we do, like, a four-week block. We're going to start off with, you know, movement uh, competency, which was our, our winter break, and then lead into, like, a high, small hypertrophy block. We finished off strength. Now we're in a speed and power. Uh, block so now because now we are fully in our MLS league next matches so yeah we plan months ahead and then you know we obviously change left and right because some games get canceled um, but it, it makes our, our our job a lot easier to just uh, yeah plan ahead. So from a practical standpoint what changes if, if you've got a, a strength block um, so then a speed and power block, what exercise train changes, what reps and set changes, is there adaptations in terms of weight, duration, all that type of stuff? What changes from a practical like delivery perspective? So 
well, when we first started off, like in the moving competency block, which was our block zero, that was like, you know, January, when we were coming back from winter break. Um, a lot of it was just easy exercises to master. If it was mostly body weights, sometimes picking up weight, but just getting the movement down. So essentially, like the exercises that we're doing now in our, you know, in our power block, they're just a progressed version of the first block. So of the movement competency block, which when we, for an example, um, we focused a lot on squatting. We, we taught the boys body weight. This is how you squat and pick up something and to eventually lead to, you know, let's say into our next block, which was uh, a deadlift squat. And I want to clarify with that because a lot of people think like, you know, a deadlift is a hinge exercise. Yes, it is for us, but we just as a club standpoint, when we teach deadlifts, they're more of a of a, a squatty deadlift where the boys actually bend their knees, drop their hips down to pick something up. Whereas, you know, maybe some other clubs teach it differently, whereas they have more hip hinge engagement, less knee bend. It's just a, it's just a club philosophy on how we teach that exercise. So we taught them how to pick up something from a trap bar, like with weight for a lot of reps. I believe we were at 10 to 12 reps um, just to build them like a hypertrophy, strong, uh, strong muscles to then six reps, but heavier weight. And now we're in this block with our power block where we're doing called trap bar clean pulls or half where we do five reps, but quality reps. We're supposed to pick that weight very fast and aggressive, tall, big shrug at the shoulders and just essentially drop the weight, reassess yourself, lift it up as fast as you can. So they all look the same. It's just how we do them. That's that's how we kind of been progressing all the exercises. And how does it change um, from when you're working from individual to individual? Because I'd imagine that, you know, you're going to have some players that maybe come into your system at under 12s that are going to get exposure to this type of stuff, probably yeah. understand the fundamentals, are able to do the exercises. Um, so potentially could lift heavier weights or do more reps quicker whereas you might have a new prospect come in who has never been in the gym before has no idea how to safely deadlift anything or how to safely yeah. front squat anything so how do you manage that in terms of giving each individual the requisite amount of challenge and obviously development mainly being being your role yeah so and and we do get that we do have some kids who are uh, their movement competency is really big and then we do get sometimes prospects that come in where they've never touched the weight in their life and they're just they look almost essentially like a giraffe on skates they're just they look like bambi they're just moving like very awkwardly so i think we're very fortunate that we have um quite a big a, a performance an academy performance staff uh, and i'll be quite honest i think we're probably the biggest performance academy staff in mls uh where we have two um athletic trainers and we have two performance coaches me and my boss and we have an intern uh strength and conditioning um intern so that alone i know guarantee that that's a pretty big staff whereas like i know in other clubs like it's only like a one-to-one -one ratio there's only one performance coach one athletic trainer for a full academy of five teams so we're very fortunate to have a fully full staff where we can have definitely a lot of eyes on the athletes we're usually I like to take the kids that are, you know, don't move well, 
Uh, my boss, Joe, likes to take the ones that, you know, move well and just, you know, challenge them, it, like just uh, to make them everybody a little bit on, almost on the same level where, you know, one kid doesn't feel like overwhelmed, like, oh, Joe Schmo is doing more than me. So we can give them more weight, still keep it the same exercises, but challenge them to the point where like, oh my God, like I'm breaking a sweat. I'm, I'm being challenged by, you know, other means, but again, like it's usually just, we keep the movement the same, just add more weight to it. So that way he feels challenged. And then I get the, essentially the prospects or the kids who are struggling to move. Um, that's kind of the way we combat, combat it. But I also let my boys take ownership. So usually our, our team captains um, are with the prospects or with the ones that are struggling. Um, I, it was uh, very important that I kind of instilled that. So, you know, take ownership for your own team and just build a good team culture. So I know some of our team captains are, are with the, the younger ones and just, just to help them out. So that way they don't feel left behind. Like, oh, our team captain's helping me out. Cool, like I don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess uh, leading on from that, how do you manage their peaks and troughs throughout a year? Because I imagine there, like you said, you wanted peak performance for this tournament and stuff. And looking back over your previous, you know, working in uh, Team USA, for example, there's going to be maybe a couple of peaks in a year that they're going to think and everything else between that is developments. Whereas in a soccer context, you know, you've got games pretty much every week or maybe two or three every weekend. So how do you manage the development, the, the athletic development side and wanting them to be more powerful and more durable and more robust, along with the fact you don't want them having doms going into a game on Saturday? How do you manage that? Yeah, so you know, it's funny because when I was working with, uh, with Team USA, it was a lot easier to manage all that because with Team USA, you're working more with individual athletes and where their job is to be an athlete. They don't have to worry about school or a job. They, I mean, that is their job is to be an athlete. So that scheduling is a lot easier versus here in the academy. I mean, they have school, they have games, um, individual development. So we do schedule three formal testing of the year. Like we do uh, beginning of the year, which is in August. We do uh, a mid one, which is in December, January. And we do uh, a final one, which I believe it's in our schedule in our books uh, mid-June. But we informally test them throughout. So when I, we, we have a jump mat where, you know, every now and then when we know, we feel like, you know, the, the schedule is going to be a little bit lighter on a certain day, we'll just have quickly have the boys jump on the mat just to kind of get an informal reading and take that into consideration, jot it down on the notes that, hey, so-and-so like hit a new peak, at least in terms of that um, for, you know, our power development, maybe for our strength development. Uh, we do know when the boys um, add a little bit more weight, we have uh, an app called Bridge Athletics. So we get to track the boys' weights. So if I see uh, a kid doing a certain weight, I'm like, oh, that looks heavier than before. I put it on the app and like hit did so-and-so and that way it tracks it. So that's an informal way we do it. But in terms for the fitness side, I mean, fitness and speed side, um, we that's what GPS comes into handy. So whenever it is our, like our big spaces day on a Wednesday, we can track the boys as like meters, their, their work rate, um, or because we know that's the day they're going to be working the most, covering most grand, or even on game day. Like we just look at, we, uh, with our own analytics with Power BI, it gives us a little check mark where, hey, so-and-so 
did 110 of their max velocity. So now I know that's a new personal record for the boy for top speed. I make a note of that. And then I change their game thresholds as, as we go on. So yeah, it's just, it, it's a challenge. It's, it's a puzzle to figure out, but, um, but it, it's within any setting, any other setting. I think that's one of the reasons why I like this setting uh, in, you know, in the football Academy or in soccer, it's just, it's very chaotic. And I feel like I, I love to thrive under the chaos and solving those kind of puzzles. And when you're looking at kind of improving their thresholds, I think that's a really interesting point. You said like they might have set a new PB or whatever during the game, et cetera. How often would you be looking for them to improve like their new PB? So say, for example, max velocity sprints in a game, which you're going to be able to get from GPSs, et cetera. How often would you be looking for those to improve in those areas? And how do you maintain those gains I guess throughout a season but then also from year to year because I can imagine you could get to a point at the end of a season where their max velocity threshold is really really high yeah. they go away and do very little then that decreases a lot again so how do you go about then so, maintaining those thresholds yeah so I, I will say like so with this new setting that I'm in it's it's a new experience because the challenge in the previous setting that I was at were um uh, we didn't have, um, you know, the, the technology or the resources to do any of that. So it was almost, you're kind of guessing or going in blind to know a lot of these stuff. So um, coming here, um, it's kind of nice, like, uh, to have all the resources to do all that. So, I mean, and again, it, but it's all str strictly with, with the planning. So again, with me and my boss uh, planning ahead, you know, five months in advance, like, this is where we aim to have the boys peak in the weight room and that should translate onto the pitch. And we're starting to see that. So with our last big game um, this past weekend, so now that we're kind of like in the mix of, uh, of our league matches, you know, I believe we're three, four weeks away from our big cup um, in, uh, in Atlanta. Um, and we're in now on our strength block, strength and power block. We played a big game this past weekend against uh, New York City, um, and the boys were top notch on their fitness. That's because we built them through, you know, our macro planning ahead. So that planning literally gives us what we need, at least in terms of, you know, what's going to come out on the GPS. Um, so, which is nice. Again, it's just all about the planning. So whatever we do in the weight room, it does translate onto the pitch and it gives us the, what we want to see on the, on the numbers. But um, also just to make a little side note of that, even though that's great, that's what the, the you know, the technology is for. I don't want to always constantly chase, chase that right number because, you know, again, we work in a chaotic environment. So that's the point where, you know, my boss always tells me and he reminds me, we're not going to be data um, driven. We're going to be data informed. All this stuff is just to inform us, are we doing the right thing? Um, we should never chase a certain number. That kind of makes sense. Like, I mean, ultimately, this stuff is just to inform us, not to drive, drive us completely. Because then you lose the identity, you lose the culture. I think as well, it's interesting if you're looking for a number of sprints, this is a really simplistic way. If you're looking for a number of sprints in a game, for example, it might just be that for that player that the ball hasn't come that side of the pitch. So actually they've done a lot less because the ball's been over the other side more. And 
you don't want them just running up and down the touchline to try and get their sprint total stuff. So. And, and there's always there's always multiple factors, and it was it was quite funny because uh, one of our previous games, actually the game I just mentioned against New York City, we covered um, the most distant. No, I'm sorry, the least amount of distance, total distance, but we had the most amount of high speed runs and sprints. So, and I'm thinking like, and and I'll be quite honest with at least our older boys, we actually lost that game. Like, now was it that did we cover less distance um, because, you know, we were not technically savvy or we didn't have a lot of sprints and high-speed runs when we were chasing the ball because, you know, we didn't have a lot of possession or, or it, it's just a, multi, a lot of multiple factors. So a, a little cool thing that we're trying to do, at least me and our video analyst, is we have a... a we have a, a video system called Speedio and we're trying to integrate the Speedio with the catapult. So now we can kind of integrate two and two. So when, on video, when we see a boy make a sprint, it would actually tell us how fast they're going and how many meters in that certain amount of time frame. what was their high speed run. So essentially it's tagging it using the GPS stuff. That's kind of the next big project me and our, uh, and our video analysts are trying to work with, which would be very helpful. Us. Yeah, and you've mentioned there a little bit around the work you do with area sizes, and it's something that we've discussed a lot on the podcast before. So, how does the work you do in the gym translate to pitch or pitch side? Um, do do you do a lot of stuff on pitch with the players, or is there certain? Do you know? Do you help with the planning process with the coaches? What does that look like? Getting the transfer from yeah. what you're doing in a set environment in the gym to then yeah. obviously seeing so, it on the pitch. Yeah, yeah. So I, I will say again, it's funny. I'm always going to use my previous experience. So with like the last uh, organization I was with, I um, maybe it was like a, a club philosophy, but I, I did not get a lot of uh, a, uh, a say or ownership on pitch sizes or even time and duration. So when I came to the, the, the Philadelphia Union, they told me you are in charge of the time, the sets and reps, and then the, the pitch sizes, which that blew my mind. Cause I was like, wow, like I'm, I'm, I have a big say on, on, on our training. So now, so that going back into uh, the way we start the day, that's, you know, the coaches meeting at 6.30 to 7 a.m. in the morning that's where I give my recommendations. So like, this is how big the pitch, uh, the drill should be for pitch size. This is the duration. So now I'm working on the physical loading. So I have complete ownership on that, which is amazing. So it really helps us out a, a lot. And again, what we do in the weight room, it translates over into the field. Like, whereas like we're teaching the boys how to sprint better, how to run better. We make it specific to the sport. We, we introduce the ball. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, quite nice to have complete ownership on all these parameters. And then in terms of um, over a week, for example, is there a threshold that you would try and hit in terms of the amount of loading the players go through? Because obviously, like you're saying there, you've got access to different pitch sizes, yeah. different durations and stuff. Would you say for a game on a Saturday, over the week, we're looking for them to complete this number of high velocity sprints or this distance, if they start getting above or below this, we need to adapt accordingly or Mondays is going to be our heavy loading day. Tuesday, we're going to wean off or this will be small sided. This will be slightly larger distances. How does that look over a week? So 
I, I'll always give credit to this part um, with a, with a previous mentor um, in my last club. Um, his name is uh, Will Sparks. So he gave he kind of gave me the insight um, on how to like help a plan accordingly, how to build thresholds. Are we hitting the are the right markers throughout the weekend? Essentially, um, he showed me the, uh, his philosophy, and then I kind of took took it apart, made it my own. Um, so what I do is I, I build threshold for, for the boys um, through Excel or and through, you know, catapults. Um, so I'm using our fall averages, which is like every game the boys did, average it out and give it a predictive 90 minutes. Why 90 minutes? Because that's for the 17s, they play 45 minute halves. Um, once I get these thresholds, because some, some kids may not actually play a full 90 minute match. So they may play sporadically 15 minutes, 35, 60 minutes. And so with those average, once I find that average, I, you know, find a, I give it a, a multiply by, let's say 90. And so I get like a predictive. So now I have something to work with. So with those averages, I get a team average. And now I know at least week to week with uh, my, the way I do my analytics with Power BI, it gives me a conditional formatting, like where so-and-so is within a hundred percent of his game distance. So essentially we're trying to build up the body, prepare them for, you know, match day. So coming in on a Wednesday when I know we're a little bit short on our, on our high speed runs, it gives me a red, red conditional formatting, maybe gold. Um, now I know I could probably do a little bit top offs with the boy at the end. I know they hate that because they say it. Oh my God, <laughs> more running towards the end of practice. A lot of players don't do that. But again, that's when I come in to make recommendations on pitch sizes in the morning to, essentially know at the end of the day the boys are you know topped off we don't have to do any extra work at the end and again always referencing back my, my former mentor will because he told me um like try to get the boys at least six to eight sprint exposures for you know hamstring health within the month um so my my analytics kind of gives me a little bit of a guidance check mark hey so and so hit about six to eight sprints throughout the month so and so didn't so now i know i'm like all right i got to be cautious i got to keep an eye on him make sure he's getting his his body prepared for the game so that's the kind of in a broad like how i look at like if the boys bodies are ready for match day no, that makes complete sense. I like the idea of having, you know, a spreadsheet that flags up other people that aren't close to what those those thresholds, et cetera, should be. So moving forward, um, you, you mentioned obviously you do a little bit of work with the school in terms of um, like the PE type type sessions with the boys and then obviously also the uh, mind gym, et cetera. Do you just want to talk through, I guess, the PE stuff initially, what you do from a foundational point of view to support them in there? generic and holistic uh, athletic yeah. development um, so, and then moving on to the mind gym kind of what that actually entails from a week-to-week -week basis yeah so um with the whole uh, the physical education component uh we it's usually 30 minutes of um like more i wouldn't want to say strongman stuff but teaching the boys exposing them to more movements with with you know weight implements like whereas like we're teaching the boys how to how to carry i know soccer players don't need to like carry heavy stuff but we we're, we're trying to expose these boys to as much as we can uh just to build an overall you know holistic and soccer machine just like so we do carries with the boys we have them do uh crawls 
We're trying to expose them into different things. Uh, so that way, you know, they can problem solve something within the pitch and they fall down how they're going to get up or so we do that for 30 minutes we um, different exercises, we teach them how to we do kettlebell swings with the boys teach them how to engage with their with their hips how to be explosive. So it's just another form, because I know we, we have structured weights with them on Mondays and Wednesdays, but the whole PE school training is just a little bit more added stuff. Uh, just to kind of, again, promote movement competency. And usually that's 30 minutes. And then the last 30 minutes, we do cooperative play or multi-sports. So we do dodgeball, jukeball. We play enough American flag football, um, handball. Just give them other sports. Just so, I mean, you know, again, they're moving in different planes of motion. Um, they're enjoying other sports besides soccer. Because I'm a firm believer that, you know, if... But one kid plays a single sport throughout their whole entire life, they are prone to being burnt out. So we introduce them to other sports, other skill sets. Obviously, we still want them to be soccer players at the end of the day, but just make, let them have fun. Because as a club, we do have these, um, these uh, cooperative multi-sport games as a match day minus one on a Friday. But like the, just adding those, sprinkling them out in a, on PE day on our school training, it's just more bang for our buck. And, and the boys, they love it. I mean, give them dodgeball, they go bananas for it. And I, I suppose what it does allow you to do by working in the school is, and this is a concern from the coaching side, I'd imagine, is you're not taken away from the coaching side when they're at the club. So you're not taken away from them doing pre-activation or doing gym sessions or actual pitch time because you've got this other allotted bit of time where you can work yeah. on them more physically or multi-sports elsewhere it, yeah exactly so that's that's kind of uh, the nice part of it and then uh, I forgot to mention and with Fridays when we have um, we just supplement we take out that um, the cooperative play the multi-sport day because we do do that in their practice um, as our you know activation and then we have that hour session as the mind gym where we 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 put the boys through um mental skill exercises, you know, to either, you know, problem solve, um, build team culture, um, which is just quite nice because um, I don't think, or at least from my experience, I haven't seen that in any other football academy club, at least here in the MLS. I know mental skills and exercises is very big in baseball because uh, I did forget to mention before this, before, um, after the Team USA, uh, I was a little bit all over the place. After Team USA, I worked with USA Rugby for a bit as a sports scientist, but I got the opportunity to work with um, in baseball with uh, the in the Dominican Republic for the Philadelphia Phillies. So I was in another country, you know, working with again another academy setting, but you know, mental skills is really big there. So it was almost you know every day for thirty minutes we would do team exercises, you know, again to build culture to build to add problem solving skills so really big in baseball you'll always find that there so it was quite nice to see that that kind of like translated over and it's in the in the soccer and the football side here with the union yeah we'll definitely get on to that because I think it's really interesting obviously they play I think it's like 182 games over a season with it within baseball so how you prepare a yeah. body to do that plus the playoffs and stuff will be really interesting but the as you know that the mental side of it is massive yeah and it, it, and it's really i think it's really important for for these boys because again they have they have school they're in a professional academy setting where yeah you know the um, 
the uh, the expectation is high for them to you know to perform here, um, but also to have like a social life out of here because it's 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 different because when the boys go to school here, they're taken out of that traditional you know school setting or or they're not in high school with you know other friends or like you know in a way also the opposite sex. So they're like literally they see the same kids every day. They, this is where they go to school. It's not, you don't get that traditional, you know, eat, uh, eat lunch with friends at the, at the quad or, or like, or just explore other things that a you know, normal high school kid w- would. So again, going through those um, routines daily, I mean, it, I would say it has to play some kind of mental toll. Like, and so like, again, so just giving these boys like exercises and how to combat those things, it helps out. So what do you actually do then? So in, in those things, if we're looking at problem solving or team cohesion, what do those sessions, have you got an example for each, what do they actually entail? How do, how do you help the, the guys with those? So I, again, like a lot of times it's, um, it's like solving a problem or if it's a fun way. So I, I remember there was one, uh, I can share with one experience that um, giving um, – a secret handshake um, and just like being put on the spot. So you obviously you partner up with a, with a boy um, that you normally don't hang out with in the academy. Um, you're, you're partnering up with him. You're in charge of uh, coming up with a secret handshake or a best friend handshake and you have to present to, um, to you know, the class, to your cohort and just having them figure something out, like socializing and engaging, um, like, and just see them come up with the funniest stuff. That's, that's, uh, it's just quite interesting. So I, I'll allude to just a little bit of that, just because I know it's, it's usually a, a, a touchier subject on some of the other mental skill sets like that we, we put for the boys. So that's just usually a fun exercise that they do. Yeah, I think that what, what's pleasing is it, you know, it is in being integrated more into academy sports to support the guys with that. Um, as you said, modern world, it is probably more pressurized and particularly being in, in this type of sporting environment, you are going to get that, um, which, which is slightly different. So in, in terms of, obviously, yeah, we'll, we'll move on to your previous experiences. Um, you, you moved from LA where, where obviously you grew up and you worked there, etc. Did you see a cultural shift moving across the country in terms of the players and how they interact and, what their motivations are and what their experiences are in, in a physical academic, uh, physical development perspective. Yeah. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, I'll even say just to, for myself, because when I first started this journey um, in, you know, performance, strengthening, and initiating, I was in Los Angeles and I literally thought, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm not, uh, this is home. I, I don't want to go anywhere. Um, but uh, a good, uh, coach that I worked under his name is Jeff Kraling and he he's not from like Los Angeles he's from Virginia and he told me like if you really love this profession um and you want to make an impact on yourself and in the profession you're gonna have to move and I was like no no I I won't but I did (laughs) and that was for my own development and so I can experience uh what others have to give or what I can give to others so being in Los Angeles um I, uh, I had, um, had a job at um, my first job as a coach, paid job. And I was very proud of myself because I was like, oh, I made it. I don't got to 
move and it was actually at my alma mater where I graduated from Cal State Northridge. I became their assistant strength and conditioning coach. I was happy. I was like, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to end my days here, but I failed. Like, and I, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that, or at least ashamed to say that because I was a young coach, very arrogant, thought I knew everything, but no one ever told me how to, how to talk to sport coaches, talk to administration. So I was just, I thought like I just could stay in my little weight room. Um, but no, I, I failed at it. And that's when I made the decision, like, I think I need to grow and learn more. Um, so I took a leap from a paid job to go intern and work for free at arguably one of the biggest universities in the nation. That was at the University of Southern California. Um, took a leap. A lot of people thought I was crazy, but it paid off. So coming into a big university where expectations were high, as, as an intern. So from there, five months, uh, just a lot of uh, sweat and tears working, you know, again, for free, but they took care of me, they fed me, they clothed me. Um, and it paid off. Uh, I remember coming in uh, one day, and then the, the head, of, head of performance was told me like, you're doing a phenomenal job, one of the best interns I've seen in years. I'll tell you what, give me a list of five places where you want to work at where you want to intern next. And I will personally call them and like go up to bat for you. And that's what he did. And what was on top of my list was the Philadelphia Phillies and the Olympic Training Center for Team USA. And sure enough, um, I, I got an interview with the Phillies. They flew me out to their spring training facility. Didn't get the job, but learned how to communicate with the staff there. You know, even after you didn't get a job, just to kind of build the relationship after and which then led to a job in the future, but came back home, interviewed with, with Team USA over the phone and um, got it. And now I had to make the decision to move to Colorado. So literally the mid part of, um, of the US and packed up my things. Um, me and, and my girlfriend, um, who, who I'm still with right now, we, yeah, packed up all our things, moved to Colorado, which it was a bit of a culture shock for me because um, I'm on my own. Um, never been yeah just never been on my own like I mean even though I was with my girlfriend but like just to be you know pay for your own rent uh buy your your own groceries because you know I was still living at home with my parents so that was complete shock for me and also just being kind of almost up in the wilderness because outward team USA trains in in um, Colorado you're, you're kind of up in the mountains there's it's a whole nature versus you know in the city of Los Angeles so but also working with different breeds of athletes where they are the one percent of the nation they're representing the best of the best to prepare for the olympics so what um, sports were you working with what what uh oh, individuals and stuff are you working with yeah um i was working with swimming uh wrestling um was working with triathlon uh diving gymnastics with a lot of sports um as, as, you know, as an intern assistant, I was getting paid. It was the contract, but uh, I was able, I was given my own like teams, which I was working with shooting, which was a very interesting sport. A lot of people think they don't need like strength and conditioning, but you'll be surprised like how much they do. Um, uh, them and I was working with, uh, with a Paralympic triathlon. So I worked with also a lot of Paralympic athletes, which working with that population of athletes made me a better coach because if you coaching someone who is visually impaired is you take away your you know one of your abilities to coach to 
visually show somebody how to do something. So now you have to rely on your verbal, how good you have to communicate with them, yeah, verbally, because again, you don't always want to touch an athlete. Some athletes don't want to be touched, so you can't put them in certain positions. So you have to be on point how you talk to them. So again, a lot of times within that setting, I did not have to motivate the athletes. They were already self-motivated because that is their job, is to be an athlete for Team USA. And, and also, if they don't perform, they're, they're out. They're, that's their job. They're, they are no longer part of Team USA. So yeah, for me, again, it was a different experience. And then you know, going back home to California, working with rugby, which was an experience that first opened me up to, you know, data analytics and sports science, to then working in the Dominican Republic, you know, speaking Spanish, because I do speak Spanish, coaching in Spanish, but working with an age group of athletes where baseball is their way of life. Like, they have to make it in baseball to provide for their family. They have nothing else. So that was... Also another, yeah, another culture shock, being in another country, being far away from home, eating the food that was provided there to like not going out late to a certain time because, you know, you don't want to get mugged. You want to be safe. So again, completely different, all great experiences that made me the coach I am today. So going on to the, the USA stuff, what type of learning experience was that for you? Because you've named some sports there that are very, very different. You know, you look at swimmers and their body type with long levers and all that type of stuff compared to your wrestlers who are going to be slightly more compact and then obviously yeah. be a different type of power and stuff. But I imagine for you as an intern going into that role, it probably really opened your eyes to the variation of athletes, but then obviously the variation of their needs and how you need to support that accordingly. Yeah, so, I mean, it was definitely... Um... Yeah, because it, it was different. Like, obviously, you train someone, um, like a swimmer is different from, you know, yeah, uh, maybe, yeah, the like a boxer. It's all completely different, which was all great experiences. It got me to expose um, to different ideas and how to train them in the weight room. Um, but I wouldn't want to say it was easy because it's definitely something that um, – you could always, you know, do your needs analysis, do your research. So-and-so, this is, you know, the certain energy system that they're in when they're, you know, when they're um, in their certain sport. This is what they need to get stronger. But again, I'll always refer to, like, the culture because the culture is always going to be different from, you know, a gymnastic uh, athlete to, you know, a boxer um, to, again, someone in modern pentathlon. I will say that our boxers um, – did not like to touch weights a lot. <laughs> they, uh, you know, and it was just, again, to tell me, like, look, this is part of your development. I remember giving a, a boxer um, uh, a Romanian deadlift, um, grabbing the bar, the barbell. They did not want to do that because they didn't want, they thought that would damage their hands. And it was a lot of times just building a relationship with them. And that's what made me a better coach because every, again, every athlete was different because their culture was different. So if I can build buy-in with multiple sports just to get them to, you know, become better in the weight room to then translate to their sport, that was more of the challenge. And again, working with Paralympic athletes um, where, you know, communicating with them was a lot different. And you're working with visually impaired athletes, athletes who are amputees, like how do you work with them to maximize, you know, their performance? Because a lot of them, and it, I, again, I'm, I was quite shocked that some, again, always like our visually impaired athletes, we 
we would program clean pulls, like Olympic lift derivatives. And they were able to do a hand clean, front elbows and squat. And it, sometimes you'd be like, are you, are you, are you visually impaired? And I'm like, yeah, I, I can't see, but they're amazing. And just, again, I'm a better coach today because I, I got to work with those kind of athletes. Is there any one particular experience or interaction with an athlete during that time that either really challenged you or really um, improved you as a coach? Yeah, and I think that was my first experience because I want to say I almost had it easy with every athlete that I had been working with. Nobody ever gave me problems where, let's say, uh, nobody was ever a diva uh, who thought they were like all in and such. I mean, I, I won't mention um, names, but I finally got to work with an athlete where it's like where she came in with her team. You lift as a team. But uh, it was very important that in, from a cultural standpoint that even though you guys are in a team, but you do, uh, you know, your own individual events, um, nobody gets special care. Nobody truly gets the special care. Um, but this certain athlete wanted all special care. But it's, it's kind of hard. Like, I'm trying to work with everybody's on individual programs, but, like, you make it seem like I just, you, I'm going to be your only strength coach. No, I also have to work with your teammates. Um, so that was my first experience working with a difficult athlete and testing my patience because I am a patient person, but it was, it was quite a challenge to work with someone who wanted all the attention. So it, I would say, was it a win? Yes, it was. Um, you know, I learned to pick my battles. Uh, I guess that was a learning experience, when to pick your battles, when to say yes, when to say no to please an athlete. But I think that was the, yeah, the biggest challenge I've had up to date. So it definitely prepared me for like, you know, whatever setting I'm at now, like, you know, like when to deal with that kind of athlete. And I'd imagine in that context, it, it can be challenging because they or, or, or she may want um, the, I'm trying to think phrase this in a delicate way they may want the attention because they're driven to win if you're yeah, okay. at team usa you probably want to be the best not only in the us but also in the world so actually they're probably trying to get that attention that support because they want to win so you don't want to stop them having that drive or the support but equally you need to realize actually for you to win the rest of your team needs to win as well or you want to win, but so do these 17 other people that I've got to work with. So I guess for you as a practitioner, it's trying to find that balance between assisting an athlete in their goal, but assisting all the athletes with their goal and not just focusing yeah. on that one. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Because at the end of the day, I'm not saying that we were understaffed there. It's just, obviously you can't hire like X amount of performance coaches because there's always a budget for a certain staff. But like, so yeah, like uh, it was definitely, that was the challenge because she was a winner. She won uh, a medal in in the Rio Olympic Games. So, I mean, so I guess, yeah, she was entitled that. Like I got goals to hit. I got silver in Rio. I need to get gold in, um, in, uh, in Tokyo. So totally understood that. But yeah, it's just finding that equal balance to like when to give. And so I remember diving into books and a big book was, conscious coach, coaching from Brett Bartholomew just to help me deal with those certain kind of athletes, like certain strategies, like, you know, uh, 
in a way, you know, give, have times, you know, pick your battle, give them their cookie when they need to, but also, yeah, show that you got to stand your ground. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So, so moving forward to the, the baseball side, I think one of the things that um, interests me kind of um, from the outside looking in, and again, I could be wrong on this, but it's probably the different types of players you have within that 11. So you look at, for example, your pitchers who, you know, might not be expected to bat at all. You Obviously, they're working on arm strength and, and being able to throw fast for, for long periods, etc., Obviously, then you've got your closers that might be maybe don't have that skill set a bit different. But then you could go to someone who's you know your um, your outfielders have to cover big areas of ground very quickly to either steal bases or or make catches around around the wall and stuff. So how do you go about one identifying what those player needs are, um, and then I guess two sculpting programs within the team thing to help the players improve and like you said there if particularly particularly in the environment you were in that's the way they're going to pay for food or support their family and stuff so you're going to get a little bit of that not deverish but a little bit of that drive to say no i need your help now because this is how i'm going to get my family out and you want to support them but you yeah want to support everyone else it's it's a melting pot i'd imagine yeah so i i want to say that is one of the biggest challenges <laughs> in baseball as at least for a performance coach like you know yeah you working with the uh with a bullpen that's you know either rotating at, uh whereas you know you have a starter and then a closer i will say that was my challenge in um in the college setting being cuz in the college setting uh that was one of the teams i had was baseball soccer and golf uh, all the other you know soccer and golf were were easy to work with baseball was a challenge especially because we didn't never had a consistent bullpen. So that was a nightmare to program. And I thought, and I will be honest that I was quite intimidated going back into baseball. Like, how do I work with that? But I guess in a way I somewhat had it easy in the academy. I mean, well, nothing's really truly easy, but uh, working with, um, you know, academy players in the Dominican Republic where um, we never really had, uh, we did have starters, but everybody almost played an equal amount of innings because it was, it's a farming system. We're trying to develop players um, where, you know, a starter would pitch for maybe three innings and then the next person comes in for three innings. And when you're in the academy in the Dominican Republic, the games are long. And when I mean long, um, you think baseball is long, two hours to three hours. It's like a four hours game in the DR because, you know, the skill set is raw. So there's a lot of technical errors that go, uh, go on. So it was uh, definitely, yeah, a, a challenge. But again, you know, I, I treated the boys um, as, you know, a, a developmental player where like we're going to focus on the fundamental movements because again, a lot of these boys never touched the weight room in their life. And it's also a, a cultural thing that in Latin America, a lot of uh, players don't lift the weights. So my job was just to get them to perform the best movements, the increase their movement competency. So that way, when they get out of the Dominican Republic and go to rookie ball in the States, they don't have to play catch up with what's going on in the States. So essentially, I'm, I was bridging the gap because, yeah, they sent me down there because it was almost like the Wild Wild West down there. Like, they don't know what was going on, like, because they, they didn't have anybody, like, you know, with, um, with the certifications or the degree in the background to work with athletes down there. So they sent me down there to bridge the gap 
Um, but that's the way I treated everybody from like, you know, the catcher to an outfield player to, yeah, a pitcher. It's just building a strong um, movement cap competency, a strong library. So that way, again, when they get to the States, they're squared away. They don't have to play catch up. And that way it doesn't hinder their chances. Like, oh, they're not developing. They're not developed. They're not, they don't know anything yet. Let's send them back to the, the Dominican Republic, which was hard for some boys. That's what happened. And it was just, uh, it hit them pretty hard because they saw it as I failed, not only myself, but my family. And do you think there's any particular reason why they're not so keen on lifting weights? Is there any background to that? You know, I just, I was always fascinated about that, but they, they don't want to be tired. Cause I remember having conversation with, with some of the boys where they think that like, especially for a pitcher, they think that's going to hurt them. It's going to be detrimental to the, to throw uh, to their pitching performance. Some of them don't want to be tired because, you know, again, baseball is long, um, in long games, um, practices are long so they just they think that's just something that's going to tire them but no it's not um, and that's one thing me you know building a relationship with them in the weight room outside of the weight room that like you know I'm not here to make you tired I'm not here to give you the extra work that you think it is bad I'm giving you stuff that's going to make you a better athlete a better ball player to you know provide for your family to have a, a, a like a long healthy career so again, it's just building those relationships. Cause again, I just, a lot of them, they thought like, this is just going to get me tired. It's not going to be, it's going to be detrimental to, to throwing for me. And in terms of um, obviously time on feet, it's going to be quite high. As you said there, it takes four hours going on and off and, and all that type of stuff. But in terms of like distances covered, et cetera, is, is that one of your main concerns for for those guys and what distance they're covering night after night after night after night? Or is it like muscular fatigue and how you manage that? Or is it dependent on position, depends on which one of those is a bit graver concern for you? Yeah, it, it's, I mean, more muscular fatigue. I mean, the boys go through repetitive motions like through the daily uh, from Monday through Saturday, because that's how long the, you know, the training schedule was. I mean, we literally played a game every day, Monday through Saturday. And Sunday was like our off day. So a lot, it, a lot of it was just fatigue because doing the same repetitive motions. And it's, um, it, it's quite hard to manage. Well, one, one, because you don't have the resources. You are, uh, even though we did have great resources, but again, like some of the resources to get down there in the Dominican Republic um, just was just a lot hard. Like, so we did what we could, um, but a lot of times it's just having, yeah, conversations with the boy on how to recover for the next day. And it was quite challenging because these boys lived on campus in the academy. They lived in dorm rooms. So like each dorm room housed like about almost 10 to 12 kids. So you can only imagine like the sleep quality that they would get when it's like, you know, we got to wake up uh, five in the morning or 5.30 in the morning because the boys have weights at 6, 6 a.m. on the dot. So some of them would get five hours of sleep, four hours, four hours of sleep. And not by choice, just because, yeah, maybe one kid is just wants to stay up and, you know, either play Fortnite or video games uh, and just to the crack of dawn and the, they, they want to be teenagers and, and I get it and I give it to them, but like, it's just, again, giving them the right tool set, the right strategy and how to recover, how to sleep and just find ways to, 
to, yeah, to just deal with what they have to do throughout the day. Um, and that, I would say that's the biggest challenge. My favorite thing that I did, like that we did as a staff is uh, we cut the Wi-Fi in the academy past 10 o'clock. So that way they would not play video games online. So that I thought that was quite funny <laughs> to do that to them. But of course, I mean, some of them found a way where it's using their own cellular data to like use a hotspot. But I thought that was quite kind of neat. <laughs> we did. Trying to get them to sleep. And then in, in terms of uh, preparing them for that. So if you look at, for example, a picture you know, right-handed pitcher, for example, they're, they're going to be, you know, lifting the left leg to drive off the back leg to scoot forward to then rotate the body. That's a lot of wear and tear on very similar body parts. So if you look at like soccer, for example, though you're going to have a lot of fatigue on your dominant ball striking leg, yeah. you have points where you're going to be jumping, running different directions. So it's probably slightly more well-rounded on that front where for a pitcher, you're going to be, stressing and fatiguing the same body parts over and over again and possibly disproportionate to one another so i can imagine like one of one of your arms your pitching arms probably going to look like popeye and then the other one was going to look like an old lady because you're not using it how would you go around preparing the players appropriately for that game and for that particular fatigue or that particular yeah well, again, just like teaching them to recover after after training, whether it's using modalities like ice or like ice bath, whatever makes them feel better, I'm all for it. Um, I know everybody has like their own like say on it. Just make them feel better. But like a lot of that stuff, we address it in the weight room. Um, still doing a lot of bilateral exercises. I, you know, um, imbalances are always going to happen in any athlete, and it's. Um, I will say as a young practitioner, I would always, I always thought like, oh, we got to find ways to, to mitigate that, to stop that, equal everything out. But it's just like a rabbit hole that you'll always keep chasing and you're never going to fulfill. So uh, again, just being in the weight room, because I, I know I'm a big believer that, you know, of cross education, you know, do something bilateral, bilateral, or maybe even on one side, it's going to have some kind of effect on the other side to balance it out. But it's just, it's a challenge, but like, it's just something we have to face. And we just have to make sure that like, we're doing the right steps to make them recover. And in terms of comparable athletes, when you look at um, uh, baseball players compared to like soccer players, is there, do you see massive differences between the two or do you see any particular similarities between the, between the two groups? Well, yeah, for, for the most part that, I mean, soccer is all running and baseball players hate to run. <laughs> so, I mean, it is an explosive and power up, powerful sport. Um, I will say that because it's a sport where maybe you can get away with the kid being, you know, a little bit more uh, meat on the bones. And, um, but, uh, and obviously we want to build, we want to have healthy athletes, but, you know, they, I remember in the, in the Dominican Republic that these kids hated to run, especially if they're, if they're an athlete coming back uh, from, from an injury doing, you know, their, their rehab exercises where we're trying to introduce them back into some, some, some form of, having them some form of an aerobic foundation. But again, these kids hate to run. And plus a lot of kids don't want to run. It's like a hundred degrees, humidity at 90%. Like nobody wants to run in that kind of weather. Uh, or, I mean, that's usually the big difference versus soccer players is at least with my boys right now. Um, I mean, they actually like to lift weights and, I mean, you know, they like to run. I mean, how, I mean, sometimes, I would argue that sometimes they don't like to sprint 
but like that is their nature of the sport, like where they have to make do sprints, make intelligent runs. Um, so if anything, it's just teaching them how to be conservative, like use your like your energy the right way, if that kind of makes sense. So that's that's usually the difference I see within those two sports that I've worked with. Perfect. Listen, I know we're closely approaching the time we allotted, so I'm going to ask you one last uh, question, <laughs> which with your experiences could be quite challenging, but who's the um, the best practitioner or coach or player that you've worked with or against and why? Ah, oh, that's, that's, that is, that's really <laughs> hard to say. Um, um, if I'm going to cheat, which I will, I will say one, uh, one practitioner and one athlete that's made me the, uh, the coach I am today. And um, I will say at first athlete um, that I got to work with it was at Team USA. He is a cyclist, a paracyclist. His name is Ryan Boyle. I would actually call him Coach Boyle because he made me a better coach. Great human being, uh, really compassionate, passion for his sport. Just overall, just great, great person. Just who taught me, again, um, how to work with Paralympic athletes, but um, just fall in love with coaching because I know like as a young coach, you kind of, you're kind of ambitious and like, oh my God, I want to work with the best. I want to work with this sport. But like you kind of, I mean, the reason why you're in this profession is that you like to help other people. And that's who somebody who kept me grounded as a person. And um, I still call him and text him every now and then. Um, I mean, he, this guy is world-class. I, I believe within his category, he's the number one in the world in, in cycling, in paracycling. Um, you may um, might have to fact check me on that, but like, yeah, Ryan Boyle made me a better coach. Uh, now, in terms of as a mentor, that's that's a tough one because I've I worked under so many people, um, and I don't want to get grilled in like, oh, why didn't you mention me and, and so and so? But um, I'm gonna have to say um, it, Johnny Alcaraz, who is the the second team strength coach for the LA Galaxy which the club that I was working with before. Um, uh, he, he literally, get, he was like my mentor on how to be a performance coach within the, the football setting. So uh, a compassionate person literally taught me the ins and out because it is a different beast when you're working in soccer because you almost have to be a blend where like, you know, performance coach slash sports scientist slash actual soccer coach. So he was just kind of like whenever I second guessed myself in in this game or in this profession, uh, I would shoot him a text, give him a call, and he would always answer without a doubt. Um, so I really do owe it to him to being like a great mentor and and an overall great friend. Perfect. Listen, what were some great conversation points there, and loads of stuff to take away and consider, and some really good insight into your, your current workings and stuff. Uh, really appreciate your time, and hopefully, catch up with you again soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Michael, for having me.